Yeah, we're rolling. All right, this is Michael Dean, and I'm talking to, what's your name, Mr.? Mr. Jordan Willis. Yeah, and we're doing a little recording here to answer some burning questions people have about the band Bomb. Bomb never really did, Bomb never really did interviews. It was something we avoided, and now that I don't have to talk to those guys, I could do interviews. They can't say, <laughs> don't do interviews. It's not cool. <laughs> Bauhaus didn't do interviews. Which there, that answers one of your questions, what was one of our uh, influences. But probably Bauhaus and Black Sabbath and um, Joy Division, the Beatles. That's about it. Led Zeppelin. A little bit of Pink Floyd. 2%, like, I'm not even going to say The Grateful Dead because then people stop listening. But I was a little influenced by Phil Lesh's bass lines on the song, on the slow version of Hell, Food, and Heroin. So we're putting out a a new old album. We're putting out Hits of Acid, which came out on Boner Records. Boner Records. In 1988, is our second album, and it was recorded at Inner Ear Studio in Arlington, Virginia, where all the Discord stuff was done, but it was recorded by Eli Janney, who also worked there. I'd done other records with Don Ziantara. I did the Baby Opaque albums and the Beef People albums when I lived in Charlottesville, but then I moved to San Francisco and then played with Bomb, and we recorded with Bomb on tour at Inner Ear Studio, and recently actually right now as we're speaking that record is getting remastered which it desperately needed the recording on it's great eli did a great job but the mastering on the vinyl i didn't really like it for and also it was, it was for vinyl like vinyl you can't turn the bass up and especially it's a long album the longer an album is the quieter it has to be the lower the bass has to be you know the needle will jump you know like how they used to do 12 inch singles for dance music yeah, yeah. Those? yeah, for kids that don't know, there's this thing called vinyl. There used to be these things called records. And an LP record was usually about 40 to 45 minutes long. Actually, like 38 to 43 minutes. Ours was 46 and a half, which is really long, which is why the album's not that loud. But the original master tapes are loud, and we found those. They're being mastered by Jack and Dino. Sounds like two people, Jack and Dino. No, it's Jack <laughs> and Dino, who is a really excellent recording engineer and mastering engineer he played in skin yard he probably best known absolutely best known for having engineered the nirvana album bleach for 600 and some dollars mud honey stuff mud honey. Too. oh it did basically everything in seattle before it went to major labels he did and i mean a lot of the stuff that's on incesticide is that the odds and sods of nirvana the uh, you know miscellaneous stuff. Uh, yeah, that's that what I mean. In '92. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's some stuff on there that was his. That was like demo tapes that he recorded with Nirvana. That they went back and had him do. And he settled did doing a lot lately of remastering stuff from old tapes. And the thing with old tapes is like, first of all, the tape we used to record that on it was recorded eight or sixteen tracks. There was eight track one inch tape and then it was mixed down to quarter inch 15 inch per second master and that's what we have tom flynn from boner records had that you know it hadn't been stored in a hot attic or a wet basement it'd been in his living room but it'd been there for 33 years and it was not a climate controlled environment and it was in san francisco where it's kind of damp anyway so what jack had to do and this is standard for revitalizing old tapes is you have to bake them, which is kind of weird. He uses something called the Snackmaster Deluxe, which is a food dehydrator, you know, for making like fruit leather. That's an actual like food processing yes, product. Yes. And when I heard that Snackmaster Deluxe, 
that's now one of the nicknames for our cat, one of our cats, Bob, who used to be feral, who's like, I mean, he spent four months of his life eating on the street, what he found. And because of that, he is constantly like, oh, I need food. You know, like if his, <laughs> yeah. you know, he'll eat everything in his bowl and they go, ah, and squeak at you. So and he, is, he is the snack, yeah. snack master deluxe. So the way this came to be, the way this remastering came to be was Chris Novoselic from Nirvana is a huge fan of Bomb. And he, one day I got an email from him. We've emailed back and forth a bunch. I'm not going to say we're best buddies, man. Put it this way. If, if he wasn't famous, I'd say, yeah, we're friends. But I'm sure someone who's famous has a lot of people who met him once at a club saying, oh, we're good friends, man. So I'm just going to say, I like him. He seems to like me. He loves Bomb. He and I have talked on the phone for probably a couple hours total and probably sent, you know, 30, 30 emails back and forth. And I used to chat with him on Twitter before he left Twitter. So he sent me an email one day and it was like a download link and I went and downloaded it. And it was, he'd gone and bought a good used copy of this album and taken the files off him and sent them to me. I don't remember if we'd had a discussion before that about that, but a couple months ago, he sent me these files and... I've been just doing, out of nowhere. Just out of nowhere. Or maybe we talked about it. I don't remember. But if we talked about it, it'd been so long between talking about it and getting them that I'd forgotten about it. I wasn't expecting them, is what I'm saying. So he sent me these wave files of these songs taken off a, turn, a good turntable, off a good copy of the album. And I've been doing a lot of mastering. I'm in this band called Biptunia. It's a one-person band. Biptunia, B-I-P... T-U-N-I-A, Bravo, India, Papa, Tango, Uniform, November, uh, India. India. Thank you, Alpha. How do you know that? How do you know the NATO alphabet? Uh, I never was in the military. I'm just kind of a nerd, I would That's say. That's funny, though. You know, you didn't, you didn't say, you know, Ignatius or ignorant. You said India. That's the right one. Probably. I, I can't go too far in the alphabet, but, uh, yeah. well, you know, I can, there's but a I have few to think tango. About it. I have to think about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I can do the alphabet thought. about as quick as I can read music, which is I can read music, but it's like a second grader stumbling through something. So Chris sent me these files. And since I've had a lot of experience recording and mastering with Biptunia, we've put 54 albums out. It's really 54. just, yeah, it's just me and whoever I play with, but Biptunia, that's my, my thing where I play everything. Yeah, it's pretty prolific. So I was like, you know, I'm going to master these. I mean, it's ridiculous to master something that's been mastered for vinyl. Like, you don't do that. But I did it, and I put up a couple songs, and people were like, this sounds better than the original. This is great. I thought about getting the original tapes from Tom, paying someone to bake them and take the files off there, the unmastered files, and mastering from that. And I wrote to Chris and said, hey, do you know anybody that can bake? And he said, yeah, Jack and Dino is a master baker. I emailed Jack and <laughs> asked him, and he's like, yeah, I'd love to do that. I would charge this much money. It wasn't much. And he's like, I'd love to have you let me have a chance to master these. And I was really into the idea, but I thought it'd be a lot of money. And I said, how much? And he said, about 120th of what I thought he was going to say. And I said, done. <laughs> Yeah, he baked it and he removed the files. And there's a little bit of problem with the original tape. The original tape, we did something really stupid, which was save money and bought budget tape. We bought tape from this Chinese oh, family. No. Yeah, we bought tape from this Chinese family in San Francisco that sold it out of their house. It was kind of weird. Like, I don't know if it was bootleg. It said Maxell or Ampeg or some major name, but it might have been bootleg just in the box of another company, or it might have been real and it might have been like, you know, stuff the company 
made that wasn't good enough to sell, or it might have been legit and fallen off a truck. I don't know, but we bought it. <laughs> we bought it, and then we put it in the van and took it in a hot van on tour across the country. And, and that then, didn't go well. And then did we it? recorded it, and then we brought it back in the van. I mean, it's not horrible. It sounds really freaking great. I mean, this mastering that he's doing, I heard a test master of a few songs yesterday, and they blow away the album. But uh, I said, yeah, add more bass. And I didn't just say that because I'm a bass player. It's like, I'm a bass player because I like bass. It's the other way around. So we might actually be taking a break at some point to listen to those if he sends them. Yeah, so I think we're up to the first question. What's the first question? <laughs> well, it depends on uh, whose questions. Uh, we've got Benjamin Noyce's questions. We'll just go through the list in order. Okay. How many copies of hits of acid originally did sell michael yeah it's weird because it's an album that like a lot of people love and a lot of well-known people love like everybody in nirvana liked it there's an interview where chris talks about kurt liking it and i know that chris and dave what's his name dave dave from nirvana Roll. yeah i just know him as dave from scream i used to see him in scream back in dc yeah like dave was up front at a bomb show like staying along like he knew the words Oh, wow. The guys in Flaming Lips like it. Uh, we toured with them. The drummer in Flaming Lips, Steve Drudes, loves Bomb. What's his name from Sonic Youth loves Bomb. A lot of people really love Bomb. But it, when I put out this test thing the other day, like a lot of people were like, man, that sounds better than the album. I had the album. I remember I remember the album. I was 14. And they wouldn't sell it to me you know, because of the, the artwork. And I had to get my brother to buy it. But it's like, it sold 2,272 copies, which is mind-blowingly low. Sold 1,633 on LP and 639 on cassette. But I think that 20 copies were made from each copy for people's friends. We did a record on Warner Brothers that sold 10,000, which is not much either. But Oh, the uh, Hate Fed Love? Yeah, Hate Fed Love, produced by Bill Laswell. The way we got signed to Warner Brothers was kind of funny. It was There was this DJ at a club we used to play, and she loved us. And her boyfriend was Jane's Addiction's manager, she wanted him to sign us so she used to put bomb on and have sex with him to like have a positive reinforcement in his head of bomb and it worked and he signed us wow he got us uh, <laughs> he got us signed on warner brothers and we got dropped by warner brothers that's a funny story do you know that story no i actually do not all right so much so there's this guy named tony fag that's the name he goes by it's the drummer in bomb drummer and co-lyricist in bomb Used to be a really good drummer. He's not a really good drummer anymore. I've actually heard him drumming lately, and it's really pedestrian and normal and not very good. But he was he was the kind of drummer that we'd do a sound check. Every bar we did a sound check in across America and Europe. Like They'd test the voice, they'd test the guitar, they'd test the bass, and then they'd say, okay, drummer, give me the tom-tom. He'd go, dum-dum-dum. You know, give me the rack toms. He'd go, dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. Give me the bass drum, boom. Boom, boom. Give me the snare. Crack, crack, crack. Okay, now play them all together. When he'd play them all together, like everyone in the bar putting out ashtrays would stop what they're doing and just stare at him like fucking jaw dropped. Like, oh my God. He was a beast. He was a beast. Yeah, he really was a beast. He also had a lot of opinions, not all of them good. I'm not consulting him about doing this because the last time he made a decision in this band, it got us dropped from Warner Brothers. So he's he's lost his, he's punched his dance card. He doesn't get to make any decisions anymore. And I don't think this is going to make money, but if it's going to make money uh, after I pay back what I put into it, I'm not going to charge the band fund for 
what I paid Tom for the tape because I own the tape and I want to, I don't want to split that ownership with people who have bad ideas. Um, but if I make any money on it, I'll give the money to Jay and he can pass it on to Tony. And Jay's really psyched about all this. Haven't heard him from about Doug. Uh, Doug, I haven't talked to Doug about this. He's not on this album, so it doesn't matter. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's on the hate fed love, Al- love album, which I can never remaster because Warner Brothers owns it and would charge me more than a ho- what a house is worth probably to get it from them. I would want to remix that one too. I didn't really like the mix on that one. It sounded like a brick, as Doug described it. And then the album Happy All the Time that Doug engineered, or Doug produced, basically, and helped engineer, sounds great. That doesn't need redoing. The last thing we did after we broke up and they got back together for, one, for three shows and put out an EP, Love Sucker, sounds great. That doesn't need redoing. The only thing I would consider redoing is the other than this is the first record to Elvis in Hell, but that's got six of the songs that are on this album. That was kind of a demo for this album, so I don't really the performance is better on this. I, don't, I think this is the last thing I'm going to be remastering. But so when we were in Bomb, this was in 1990, 1991. Uh, we got signed to Warner Brothers, got a crappy deal with Warner Brothers. We got sixty five thousand dollars, including half that went to making the album. Um, and then had and then a that lot was of the advance. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of it went to paying back debts and lawyers and manager cut. And we'd borrowed two hundred dollars from my dad five years earlier to make Elvis in Hell. And like Tony didn't even want to pay that back. He was not a pleasant person. I'm not going to go into a lot of it. All his ex girlfriends refused to talk to him. He once got a dog, and he used to yell at it to try to make it be his protector. And one day he took the dog to the park and it just took off and never came back. And that's kind of how people are with that guy. And I'll just, that's all I'll say about him. We got on Warner Brothers. We were the, one of the first bands that they were going to put a parental advisory sticker on. And it's because we had the word fuck in one song three times. And we really didn't like that idea. You know, it was before everybody knew about it. Like for a while, kids would only buy a record if it had the parental advisory sticker on it. They're like, I don't want it if it doesn't have cussing. But this is when they first came out and we felt like it was censorship, which it was. Tony wanted to protest that censorship. And the way he wanted to do that was he wanted to put a swastika sticking out from behind the four corners of the sticker in the artwork. Uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. I said, no way. Doug and Jay said, no way. The manager said, no way. Which should have been the end of it, but this is kind of how Tony is, and this is why a lot of people who've done more than just hung out with him, who've actually been in relationships with him, don't like him. He made a unilateral decision to call Warner Brothers' art department and introduce himself, be friendly and charming like he is, talk to some some new guy, you know, like some guy that hadn't worked there long, that was working on our cover, told him the swastika idea. The guy was like, I don't think that's a good idea. And he's like, I don't know if he said it's already been approved or what, but he got the guy to do a mock-up of it. And this is before computers. Like he'd have to FedEx the mock-up. He couldn't just email it. So the guy was working on the mock-up. He's working at Warner Brothers. He's drawing swastika coming out of the four quarters of this thing on a big drafting table. And the guy who ran Warner Brothers at the time, whose parents had died in the Holocaust in Germany in World War II, Strolled through the art department, you know, came down from his ivory tower, strolled through the art department and saw this artwork and said, who the fuck are Bomb and why the fuck are they on our label? And they didn't technically drop us because they were making a big deal at the time about being pro-free speech. Like Ice-T was on the label with his metal band, Body Count, and they had a song called Cop Killer. 
you know, like the FBI was telling them, you can't have a song called Cop Killer. And Warner Brothers was like, no, we believe in the free speech and the rights of the artist. And also Jane's Addiction's record cover had, you know, sculptures of naked women or naked women on it. And that was censored a lot of some places. The cover of that album was just the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. You know, so they were making this big, what do the kids call that now? Virtue signaling. Warner Brothers was virtue signaling that they were open-minded for artists, but they weren't open-minded for us, but they didn't want to drop us because it would have looked bad with everything else they were saying. So they put the album out and then did not promote us. They had posters for the album. We went on tour and they were FedExing them intentionally to get there a couple hours before we'd play, like the day we played. So they couldn't hang them up anywhere and they couldn't be seen. They just weren't doing anything to help us. They were like, yep, we put out that album and now it's going to die. A lot of record stores didn't have it. A lot of record stores got one copy of it. Record stores didn't get promo pick anything, anything. They didn't, their calls weren't returned. Our calls weren't returned. At some point later, we, they said, you're not renewed for another album. So Tony got us kicked off Warner Brothers, which is pretty fucked up. And it's uh, one reason I don't, one of the many reasons I don't talk to that guy. Did any of the songs get on college radio or anything? Did Did you guys get any radio play? A little bit. Or was the promotion just um, lacking? Well, I heard us on the radio in San Francisco, but it wasn't because Warner Brothers sent the record out. It's because we were from San Francisco and... The alternative rock station that used to be the classic rock station played us a few times. They played the song, All My References Are Dead. That was kind of what they would have pushed as a hit if they'd pushed us for that album. Not Made to Fire? No, because it talks about guns. It uses guns as poetry. And even back then, guns were not, you know, oh, you can't have guns. When they showed that song, Jeremy, I think, by Pearl Jam on, yeah. on MTV, like there was a gun in that, like not even... I don't think it was even held. I think they just showed it and they censored it. Based on a real event, or is it not? I don't know. I've never been a fan of Pearl Jam. They're the one band from Seattle I didn't like much. I did hear that I was considered for the singer in that band. When the other guy died, they were talking about me. I don't know, probably because I was also blonde and weird. When uh, Andrew Wood? Or yeah. Is that who you mean? Yeah, when he died, whatever, I was on the short list of people, but I think they just found out I was also a heroin addict and they didn't want that, so... Makes sense. I like the Melvins a lot, but they're so prolific, I can't keep up with them. We've played gigs with them. We were fans of them. They were fans of us. But they have, how many records do they have? A lot. Almost as many as Biptunia, probably. They still, to my knowledge, put out an album per year. At yeah. least one. Yeah, and they've and been together I, since 90. Actually, they were together before Nirvana. Bomb was together before Nirvana, too. Which is weird, because I've heard people say they think we were influenced by Nirvana. Other way around. I don't know. I've never asked Chris. I just, I can't ask him. I don't want to ask that if Bomb influenced Nirvana, but I think... Maybe. Maybe. I mean, Kurt loved the song, I Loved You, Then I Died, but I don't know if they had, you know, it's on three things. It's on this album, which came out in 88. It's on Elvis in Hell, which came out in 87. It's also on a demo tape that we did with the Porter Studio that came out really early 87 or maybe late 86. Oh, you asked about our first gig, didn't you? Or somebody did, one of the questions. Some of these questions are yours, and some are, I just went on Facebook and said, we're doing this thing. Who wants to ask questions? Our first gig, it was a really good gig. It was opening for Flipper and Tex in the Horseheads, July 4th, 1986. 86. Yeah, because I moved to San Francisco in 85. That was a great show, but there were five bands. We were first, and it was people were still coming in. It was still light out when we played. It was like 7 p.m. 
a place called The Farm, which is an actual farm with animals in San Francisco. It used to be. <laughs> uh, the way bombs started, that was one of the questions someone asked, was I had been in this band Baby Opaque in Virginia, which was kind of like, I had actually never heard the Minuteman. I'd heard Husker Du, but it wasn't influenced by either, but people compared them because it was... You know, it was a trio, it was kind of jazzy, it was kind of punky, it was kind of fast, and a lot of time changes. The best-known song from that band is straight-up 4-4 Ramon-style punk rock. It's a cover of Long Black Veil, the Johnny Cash song that we did, that has Ian MacKay from uh, Minor Threat at the time singing backup on it. Or actually, I think he just started Fugazi. But that's the song people usually know from that. But the band put out an album and an EP, and it's really... It's quite varied, and it's it's actually the most intricate music I probably ever did, which is probably why it wasn't that popular too. So I had <laughs> I had some albums left over from that band when I moved to San Francisco. I was trying to sell them or give them away to use as a calling card. I took them to a bar. Bar was called the Kennel Club. Bomb later played there a lot. I met Jay. Jay was there with his wife, and they were watching this band from Texas. You might know them. Well, they're way before your time, but they were called the Rhythm Pigs. You ever heard them? Actually, I have to admit that I don't know. Well, no, there were, there were two bands called the Rhythm Pigs. One was called Johnny Somebody and the Rhythm Pigs. That was like a rhythm and blues band from L.A. But the Rhythm Pigs were a hardcore punk rock with jazz band, kind of similar to Baby Opaque, but more on the hardcore side, from Texas. And they moved to San Francisco also. Oh, I forgot to mention, Boner is the label that Hits of Acid was on. That was also the Melvins label. We recorded at the same studio, too, a bunch. In San Francisco, it's called Razor's Edge, which is now owned by Fat Mike from NoFX, or it was last time I heard. Uh, so I met Jay at this bar. We got along really well. He said, you should give me an album and I'll give you a drink, or I'll buy you a drink. I think he had drink tickets. I think he'd played opening or something. And he bought me a drink. I uh, gave him the album, and I wrote my phone number on it, the house where I was crashing on someone's couch in Berkeley which is actually on the same street that the incoming vice president grew up on. That woman that likes to throw young black men in jail and keep them there for drugs, for nonviolent offenses. That's as political as I'll get all day. Uh, <laughs> but that's true. She also kept a good, well, I don't, my lawyer is nodding to me that I can't say she framed somebody. But yeah, I wouldn't say yeah, that. Yeah, it was Bancroft, it was Bancroft Avenue in Berkeley. And I lived across the street from Subterranean Records, which was the label from the house where that label was run, which was the label that Flipper and Helios Creed were on. And that's how I met Helios was he wanted to, he lived in his van, his bus and he wanted to plug in his bus to charge the battery at our house. So Jay bought me a drink and we chatted at the bar while we watched the Rhythm Pigs. We both really liked the Rhythm Pigs. You know, I told him I was looking for someone to play music with there and I'd moved out there to play in a band. So when I was in Charlottesville, like I was in this really killer band and it, it didn't go anywhere. And I realized it's like, I need to move to a big city, you know? And I thought, well, if I moved to New York, I've heard New York's harder to live in. It eats people up and it's also too close. Like I could go back to Virginia, but San Francisco is far enough away. And I did take a bus out there and I did take LSD on the bus all every day for three days on the way out to San Francisco, which I don't oh, recommend. Crap. I don't recommend that. When I got there, like <laughs> for like four hours, I thought I was still moving when I got to the solid ground. <laughs> I also met the devil on the bus. It was actually a, a preacher that had a cataract in one eye. Some like old Southern guy in a cheap suit that would like blow his nose into his hands and wipe it into his hair. He was real, but I thought he was the devil. I told him to stop bothering this lady. He said, I'll tell you what, son. 
I'll get off this bus right now if you don't like me. I didn't tell him to get off the bus. I just said, I, you leave this lady alone. She told me when you went to the bathroom, she doesn't like you. You know, he was bugging her. And he wasn't like, hey, baby. He, wanted, he was like, I want to make you my wife and make you my wife in Jesus. And just this crazy shit. He really was saying that. That is some fact to have crazy shit. <laughs> yeah, but I jumped in and kind of white knighted her. I wasn't trying to hit on her. I was just, I could see how nervous she was. She didn't like it. She was a black lady. People think I'm white. I'm part of the problem now. I've never been nice to black people. I was nice to a black person more than once. This guy was crazy. And he, he had this like envelope full of hundred dollar bills. He was showing her probably two grand, but he's like, I'm rich. I can make you my wife and we can love Jesus together. And it was just really, and she went to the, he went to the bathroom and she was like, I was like, is he bothering you? And she's like, yeah, he's bothering me a lot. And when he came back, I said, you should leave her alone. She's, she's bothered by this. And he said, I'll tell you what, son, I'll get off this, this bus at the very next stop. But I'll tell you this, my brother-in-law is the Lieutenant Governor of Georgia. If you ever set foot in that state, you're going to prison for 99 and one half years. And okay, he, well, I won't and, go to Georgia. And then. he got off the bus, <laughs> I actually went to Georgia many times with Bomb, including after that. But he actually got off the bus and then I saw him later colorado at the pueblo colorado bus station like he got off the bus and got ahead of me what did he do like take that money and rent a helicopter i don't know man it was weird though so i met jay gave him one of my albums i wrote the phone number on it where i stay and he called me a couple days and he's like hey this is really great music you're a really good singer man we should play together and i went over and jammed with him at his house at 1334 jesse street which i'm including a digital download that goes along with this album that's just pictures and stuff there's a picture of it in there i took a picture of it a recent picture off of google earth so you can see the garage we started in when we were a garage band but we first played upstairs in his living room played both played acoustic guitars and just improvised and it went really well and i sang a little you know i said i play bass too my amp got lost by the bus company but i should have it by tomorrow so you know we can jam and he called me a couple days later and he said i got a drummer and a bass player. Why don't you come over and just sing? And I'm like, okay, I'll do anything, whatever. And we went to this place called Turk Street Studio, which was a dump where like, you know, Flipper used to shoot up and squirt their names in blood on the wall, things like that. So um, so we jammed with, it wasn't Tony on drums. It was this woman, I don't remember her name, but she played drums in Jay's wife's band, Typhoon. And she played drums. And the bass player was this guy named Pete, who was a speed freak guy with a mohawk from new york city and it was like totally seemed like he's from new york city like hey i'm walking here motherfucker you know like that kind of tough and, and it was real <laughs> yeah. but and he talked like that so we jammed four of us with me just singing with jay playing guitar and it went pretty well the drummer you know she was too busy to come back again she had fun but we didn't call that bomb we just called that a jam but that guy, Pete, that's the only time he played with me and Jay. And he, he tells people he was the first bass player in Bomb. I've been at a club, talked about Bomb, and someone was like, oh, yeah, I met their bass player, this guy, Pete, with a mohawk. No, he didn't play bass in Bomb. He jammed one time before we were called Bomb. <laughs> Slight misrepresentation. Yeah, yeah uh, but that's uncommon with a band that's, you know, that's cool. Even if they're not huge, if they're cool, people will claim they were there. The next time we wanted to jam, I said, you know, I'd really like to play bass and sing in this. I'm a pretty good bass player. Solid enough that, you know, you can improvise a world of beauty and darkness of guitar around me. We just need a drummer. And he's like, well, there's this guy named Tony. <laughs> he's like, I don't know, man. He's kind, of a, he's kind of a hard personality. That's how Jay said it. I don't know. Is he a good drummer? He's like, yeah, he's a great drummer. So we jammed with Tony. It went really well. 
first time Tony played with us, he showed up. He had a shaved head and he had lipstick on. I was like, oh, he's a skinhead that'll beat himself up for being gay. That was my thought about him. <laughs> he's not a skinhead. He's a shaved head. He's Filipino, German, and doesn't like white people. He's the first person I ever met that doesn't like white people. That's popular now. That's like a good thing to be now, I guess, from all the kids are doing it. But yeah, he's the first, ugh, first person I met who's like that. Like he used to make fun of me for being white, which is cheesy. Well, yeah. I make fun of myself for being white. But, you shouldn't. You, know. you should stop. <laughs> you should never make fun of yourself for anything, man. Believe well, in yourself. That's Believe in yourself. That's good advice. Believe in yourself. I try. All right. So Tony played with us and it went really fucking well. We wrote a song that actually, I wonder if Jay has this on a recording. Like it's the one bomb song that never got released. It's called Liver... Liver Legs in Libya. It was right after the bombing with Libya, U.S. bombed Libya. I think it was under Clinton. I don't know. Somebody, or Bush the first. We're not called bomb because of that. We're called bomb. That was one of the questions. How'd you get the name bomb? Jay wanted to call the band Mom, M-O-M, like your mother, Mom. Right. Which is actually kind of a good name, but it's not nearly as good as bomb. But he had a cold and he said, we should call the band Mom. <laughs> you know, we thought he said bomb. We're like, that's great. Bomb's great. And actually, there's some other bands since then have stolen the name Bomb. There's a band called The Bomb, which is people from, actually, one of them's last name is Dean. It's weird. People from Naked Ray Gun. And it's kind of fucked up that they use the name Bomb because they know us. They We've opened for them twice. Naked Ray Gun? Naked Ray Gun, yeah. And so they, yeah, I like, I like them. They're good. They were really good. They were, uh, they were catchy. Yeah. I would say, I've never heard this, but I would say that Green Day owe a little bit to them. Something about their catchy vocals where everybody sings all together on the same, in unison. I think, you know, uh, 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 uh. I mean, other people did it. The Buzzcocks did it. Yeah, but, I, could, I could see, I could see the influence. Yeah. yeah. My favorite song of theirs is Treason. That's a great song. Yeah, well, they committed treason by stealing our name. I mean, they're called The Bomb, which is even stupider. It's like, dude, that's The Bomb, which that phrase, the hip hop phrase, The Bomb for something that's good, came right. years after our band started. Yeah, I mean, if you search Bomb on iTunes, there's a hip-hop band called Bomb that did one record and nobody's ever heard of them. I've, I've Googled them. I've never seen them reviewed anywhere. They've never played anywhere. And then there's The Bomb. There's a couple bands called The Bomb. It's weird. So yeah, we were the first Bomb. At one point, Jay got sick of the big city and moved to France with his wife and had their kid, Penelope. Penelope, actually, is French? Or Jay was there like three or four years. His dad's a famous jazz, a kind of famous jazz musician named Barr Phillips, B-A-R-R-E. It's his stepdad, but it's the guy that raised him from like a baby. So it's his dad. And he lived with okay. him in, in a castle in France. No shit. For like three or four years. And during that time, we kept Bomb going with a different guitar player, Doug Hillsinger, who, as I said, later played in some other stuff. And, you know, actually, Doug... He will want money from the $12 this album re-release is going to make. Because when we, were, <laughs> when we were going into the studio to do the Warner Brothers record, he said, I'm not going to do this unless you blah, blah, blah. You know? But he said, I want to make money. I want an equal cut on all bomb records ever because you wouldn't exist if it weren't for me now. You wouldn't be signed. And I'm, I kind of think that's bullshit because Jay came back and we would have fucking played with Jay. Tony and I had nothing really big going on. We would have played with Jay. I mean, I really appreciate Doug's songwriting ability. I appreciate his guitar playing. But everybody's favorite record is Hits of Acid. And that's one he doesn't play on. Part of that is because I don't think Laswell really put his heart and soul into recording 
the record he did with yeah. us. But also, the, it's like, you got a thought on that record? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it, it struck me how <clears throat> low the guitars were mixed immediately after, yeah, yeah. well, compared to the Sex Kiss Cage demos. Yeah, like, of the same songs. Well, yeah. he, you know, he did the worst record by some of the best bands. He did an album by Public Image Limited that sounds like metal. He did Orgasmatron by Motorhead, which is not their best album. He mostly did world beat stuff, but he did a lot of records. He did a Sonic Youth album. He just, I like, the rock records I've heard that he did are not great. I mean, he's a good guy and a good producer, and I dig him, but he wasn't the producer for us. We actually wanted the guy that did Van Halen. What's his name? I forget. He's the guy that did the Van Halen records, but he was on a a long hiatus, shall we say, of not coming into work at uh, Warner Brothers, and I actually saw his office. It was, uh, we walked by it. A manager said, yeah, that's his office. There was hot coffee on the table. The light was on, on the desk. It looked like he just gone to the bathroom or something, but he's, they're like, yeah, he hasn't come in for a year, but he did made so much money with Van Halen, we're letting him take a year off. You know, I'm not going to say he was inhaling things in his nose, but that's what I heard. That's the rumor I heard. that He just <laughs> went and did that for a year. So he wasn't available to produce our record, but Bill Laswell was. Bill Laswell actually turned down Jane's Addiction based on a photo of them, which I thought was kind of funny. Whoa, <laughs> I think he thought that... they were a metal band. Oh, that's... Yeah. Unfortunate career yeah. decision. Then. Well, so, uh, I think it was a fortunate career decision for Jane's Addiction because I think that the guy that did their record is fucking great. We tried to get him too, but he was booked up for like a year. You know, I think there was some talk of getting Jack and Dino, but he was booked up for a year then too. We never asked him, but I think that that was one of the names we bandied about. Did Time Warner make the final decision on you guys getting Laswell to produce that record? Well, we wanted to produce it with Doug producing which actually would have been a lot better. You know, we just wanted to have Warner yeah. Brothers pay for a studio and an engineer and have Doug produce it, but they wouldn't do that. They basically, major labels generally don't let you do that because they have a formula of no matter how weird you are, we need, basically they need adult supervision. They need a producer they've heard of, which is why like whatever, DGC or whatever, didn't really like the album that Nirvana did after their big hit. They did an album with Steve Albini. Yeah, and in Europe. they didn't like that, and they remastered it all a lot different than the way he produced it. I think, think they remixed a couple of the songs. I think they remixed Heart Shaped Box and a couple others. Yeah, Scott Litt did, I believe. Next question. Let's do the David Yao question. All right. You were known for kind of getting pretty wild on stage, right? Well, and as wild as I could be while holding a bass and playing it and singing, but yeah. But you managed to, you know, get some nudity involved. So, yeah. and then of course David, naked. David Yao, Jesus Lizard, great band. Uh, he, you know, his penis has been exposed many times. So, if there were a contest, like who, whose penis has been seen more, you or David Yao? Probably David Yao, because we had more of a reputation for getting naked than we did. I mean, I'd say out of six hundred gigs, I probably got naked twenty times, maybe. Although I did get blown on stage by my girlfriend one time at a hey, show. That was kind of cool in front of 600 people. But uh, And one time, <laughs> one time we got naked in Salt Lake City and the guy who ran the club came up and said, hey, I think you guys are great, but I don't want to go to prison. Put your clothes on because it was Utah. Um, yeah. We got naked before everybody else did. We wore dresses. You know, I, I wore a slip before Kurt Cobain did. Not that he copied me, but you know what else? 
we had a, a male go-go dancer before Nirvana did too. We had a guy named Eddie, who was our roadie, who's bisexual drug addict guy who was kind of cool, except he died owing me $700, which kind of pissed me off. Died of AIDS. One of the first people I knew who died of AIDS. Yeah, Eddie mm-hmm. would tour with us and he would strip naked, but strip down to underwear and like run in place next to us. And he's really athletic and he danced a bunch. It was kind of cool. I liked it. I dug it. I'm not saying Nirvana ripped that off. I have no idea how they, but they do have a male go-go dancer in that live at Leeds or live at wherever thing. The one where they do, the one where they do the Fang song, the money will roll right in. Oh yeah, which is, uh, which is really Redding 92. Yeah, yeah, which is really apt and funny. They, I think they have a male dancer at that, don't they? I thought. I mean, I've seen the bootleg of the 91 show that they did in, in Reading. I, I wanted to say that they had the guy doing that at the 91 show, but I could be mistaken. Yeah. But they Are, definitely did the money will roll right in. They did yeah. that in 92. I kind of get the feeling that the guy they had doing it was straight, but he was kind of femmy. The guy we had doing it was bi, but really macho. It's kind of weird, kind of cool. The money will roll right in. Now that brings up another thing. Fang, the band who wrote that song, was also on Boner Records, and I think they invented grunge. You know, there's been a lot of discussion of it. I mean, if you want to take it back all the way, I think that Blue Cheer invented grunge. And there was actually, Jack and Dino and I have exchanged about 200 emails between us, like 100 each back and forth while working on this project. And a lot of it was just getting to know each other. I actually asked him if I could release it as the as the liner notes for this album but he said no nah, i don't want to do that but you can you can pick a few choice quotes one choice quote is that he agreed with me that the first real grunge band was blue cheer in the 60s but the first modern grunge band i think was fang because that song and that whole album land shark on boner records sounds like nirvana like six years before nirvana started no nirvana started when 80 seven i want to say yeah definitely 87 okay they were they were doing shows in 87 yeah so but that record came out in 81 or 82 the land shark album and oh yeah tom tom flynn plays guitar on that he runs boner records and i actually think he invented grunge but that album i think the band invented grunge but i think he did that was before the melvins it was before tad i'm pretty sure oh did you know that i introduced tad to his wife tad from the band tad Oh yeah, tell that story. I don't I don't know much of the story. Well, there's this woman named Peggy Tully who I've known since 84. I met her July 4th, 1984 at the Rock Against Reagan show. It used to be Rock Against Racism in England, but in America it was Rock Against Reagan at the time. I missed Dead Kennedys by 5 minutes because one of the guys who was driving had to go like wash his face twice and try two different outfits on fucking loser but uh i saw mdc i saw mdc play and the park police didn't want to let them play during the fireworks and they dave he barked over the mic surround the generators and like 50 commie skins surrounded the generators and kept the police at bay that was pretty awesome i've never seen that was some early civil disobedience from my life from seeing things in my life i wasn't a part of it but i was there i had just moved to dc I wanted to start a band. Of course, it's what I do when I move anywhere, except here. I finally realized when I moved to Casper, Wyoming, that I am the band. I don't need the band, and it's a lot easier. <laughs> you know, because 
people that are, all musicians have ego problems and they're all basically children. And that yeah. includes that includes me. I mean, you dealt with me getting ready to sound check for this. And I was like, God damn it. So, well, and then I'm difficult to deal with. And um, yeah, you are. You take a, a like, different way, a different you take way. take an hour but, to do something that should take five minutes. But yes, I, right. I take 10 seconds to do something that should take five minutes. And that's what she said. But um, psh, no, <laughs> no, actually, uh, actually, the ladies liked me. And some, I'm actually friends still with old girlfriends of mine, some of them, a few of them. Um, where were we? Oh, about Yao. Somehow we got off of Yao. But yeah, David Yao. Yeah, so David um, Yao from scratch acid and jesus lizard uh scratch acid bomb played with scratch acid in the basement of a unitarian church in dekalb illinois dekalb illinois in 87 i want to say late 87 early 88 we opened for them there were two bands it was a great show totally packed a lot of shows we played i would say we averaged playing to 50 people we played sometimes to five people we played sometimes to 300 people. The most we ever played with was 1,400 people opening for Primus and then, oh, we, wow. and then played for 900 people opening for the Black Dolls in Germany. Primus was in California, San Jose. Primus fans were throwing ice at us. They didn't like us, some of them. But generally, <laughs> like in San Francisco, we'd play to three to 500 and anywhere else we played to 50 to 100 or sometimes 150 or like when we opened for other bands it was better sometimes like scratch acid we played for 200 250 people so after that show tony fag had a squirt gun and was following david yao around squirting him and calling him short and belittling him tony says he made david yao cry and he's proud of it i didn't see david yao cry but i saw tony chasing him and bullying david yao it fucking broke my heart. That's the kind of stuff I saw this guy do and why I don't like him and why I don't return his calls and why if he emails me about this, I won't even read it. <laughs> so, yeah, that hurt, my, uh, that hurt my heart for him to do that to David Yao, man. I didn't know of uh, any any crying, but uh, I, I had heard that he uh, backstage uh, ran around and chased David Yao with a squirt gun. Yeah, and it was, you know, I mean, for like a minute, it would have been funny, but it was for like a half hour or 45 minutes. Tony would stop, and then he'd jump out and do it again. I don't really consider that kind of pranking good. You know, that's like Beavis and Butthead bullshit, or worse. <laughs> I mean, it's it's total frat boy. It's frat boy shit. I'm not a dude dude. I don't even like when friends of mine talk to each other or talk to me and we're like oh fuck you faggot or like you know well you know you're a piece of shit so you'll get this joke i never do that i don't do dude shit and chasing someone with a squirt gun for a half hour or more until they really want you to go away and you don't stop that's dude shit you know i don't do dude shit so david yeah is fairly short yeah well he's in flipper now too do you know that He's the same. no i flipper. didn't know that yeah flipper the only original members are the guitar player and the drummer and it's this woman named Rachel on bass who's played in Mud Women, which Mud Women were like the first kind of riot girl band. Courtney Love got a lot of it from them. And they're friends with, I'm not great friends with them, but Jay from Bomb is really good friends with them. And I think Tony is really good friends with them or was. But yeah, the bass player from Mud Women is the bass player in Flipper. And the singer is David Yao. Last time, I mean, they played a gig like that less than a year ago, like right before COVID. And I think they recorded. You know, Chris Novoselic played in Flipper too for one album, right? Um, actually, I didn't know that that he recorded with them. I knew that he went on tour with them. Yeah, he recorded, and that he described it as he survived playing bass for Flipper. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, you survived. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, Flipper used to have a van that was all painted up. It was like a big milk truck kind of van that they toured in. And there was, on the side of it, it had a bunch of graffiti. And one of them in big letters said, Flipper suffered for their art. Now it's your turn, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> well, that's not ominous. <laughs> yeah. But no, he recorded with them. I think Jack may have recorded it. It's called um, Flipper. I think it's called Love. Flipper. Uh, yeah, Love album. Flipper. Let's see. Oh, it was recorded at Chris's house. That's right. Yep, Jack recorded that at Chris's house. Is Chris, does he still live in Washington State? Yeah, he's got a farm. He farms potatoes and I think onions. He's a farmer and goes to the farmer's market and sells vegetables that he grows. I can definitely see him doing that. Yeah, man. He's got a good life. And I think a lot of people think that Dave Grohl is the more successful person after Nirvana. But for what I would want in my life, I think Chris Novoselic is more successful because he got to have it all. He got to be a rock star. He got enough money to buy a nice farm and not have to work if he doesn't want to. And there you go. Has, and gets to just do projects he wants to. Like Dave Grohl has to do a record every couple of years now, you know? Oh, yeah. Pretty yeah, much. He's, he's I mean, not that, with... not that he'd be sued or anything if he didn't, but people expect Dave Grohl to make music. Chris can do what he wants. So next question. Yeah. Uh, when do you guys do your first national tour going around the states really quick uh before we had an album out we had a cassette that had four songs on it that we did on a four track i don't even know what that's called i think it's just called bomb the picture of if you ever can see that anywhere if you ever see it get it if you see it used for a reasonable price the cover of it looks like i think it's actually a picture from the bombing bay of a world war ii plane like it's looking down on a city which is kind of ominous that is yeah we're dark, but we're funny. We laughed about it all. It was good. It was good. Tony, I got to say, too, of Tony, Tony was my best friend for a while, but he was just such a mean best friend that it couldn't last, you know? But it had its good moments? Yeah, yeah. It had its good moments. We got along. Actually, it was kind of, when Doug was in the band, it was kind of me and Tony against Jay and Doug. Not really against, oh, really? but like, those guys loved to smoke pot. Tony and I didn't smoke pot. We liked heroin. But actually, someone asked about drugs on tour. Before Doug was in the band, the other two members of the band besides me and the roadie were often on acid, but didn't give me any. They thought I wasn't mature enough for real drugs or something, I guess. I don't know. They were holding out on you. Yeah, That's and I think cool. they were doing not full doses, like doing a half dose to stay up and drive and drive across America. Jesus. I'm making this up. This never happened. No one... Th that didn't That didn't happen. No, that it didn't, didn't happen. happen. Um, wink, wink. You guys did multiple tours, and so did any, any particular tour strike you as the best tour? I love the, Euro the European favorite? one, man. Europe was great. We, we toured America six times. Well, we did six tours in America, but like one of them was just the West Coast, the first one we did before we had an album out. Do you ever see the movie? There's this documentary called Another State of Mind with the band, what are they called? Mommy's Little Monster. What's the band, DJ? Social Distortion. Um, oh. They made a concert movie where like everything goes wrong. The bus breaks down. The band all quit and fly home. The singer ends up doing the rest of the tour with an acoustic guitar. So our first tour, we were in a station wagon and we drove up to Oregon. Like we played, you know, Portland, Seattle, maybe Vancouver, I think. Eugene, Oregon, uh, Grants Pass, Oregon. The first time we played, we, we got there late the other bands had all played. People were packing up to leave. It was Grants Pass, Oregon, outside on the college. And there had been like 400 people there. And there were like 75 people there by the time we got there. And we just started loading right onto the stage. 
And the promoter went on the mic and said, hey, hey, don't leave. The band from San Francisco's here. And people started coming back. And we played two and a half songs and it got shut down by the police. That was our first out-of-town gig. Wow. And then we drove to Eugene, Oregon, or Grant, I forget which town, but wherever it was, the second place we went, our car broke down and they had, we had to get it towed to the guy we were staying with driveway. Our roadie was a mechanic, which you should always have a roadie as a mechanic. And our roadie was out fixing the car. Our host, the guy that put on the show said, you want something to do here? I, I got a videotape of uh, this good concert movie. And he puts in this movie about a band like in the same situation we're having. It's kind of disheartening. <laughs> All right, next question. That ties into a um, question on like, what was the, as far as like on stage, the like absolute catastrophes that I mean, well, truly did your amp ever catch on fire um, or no usually tony's drums broke because he didn't have money because he spent his money on heroin so he didn't have money for like a band on tour should replace their stuff every day and we also weren't making enough money to replace his stuff every day but even in san francisco probably 10 percent of the time we'd start practicing tony's snare or sticks would all break and tony'd have to jump on his motorcycle and ride to guitar center and borrow money from us that he never paid back to uh <laughs> which is another reason why if i make any money at this i might just keep it because i bought him a lot of drumsticks and burritos but this thing isn't going to make money for it to make money it has to make back all the money i'm spending paying jack and dino the money that i spent on fedex here and there the money i spent on getting the record cover remastered for the present time by the way, Jay is the best guy in the world. I love Jay. Jay was never a problem. I still dig him. We still talk. Doug ain't getting none because, you know, I don't let people tax me. I don't like people to uh, to rent seek on my labor because we didn't even know he existed when we made this album. So there's nothing in writing. He just, he like basically twisted my thumb and made me say yes before we went in the studio for the Warner Brothers record, which is a really shitty thing to do. Doug has some good qualities other than that. I dig him. He's a nice guy. All right. Yeah, I talked to him very briefly on the on those demo tapes that uh, we've been oh, yeah. discussing. Yeah, he's a nice guy. yeah, he can't find the tape. He can't find the tape, unfortunately. Yeah, or he but... doesn't want to. I wouldn't blame him if he didn't want anything to do with it, but he probably can't find it. He's not he's not a fibber. Unlike some other members of Bomb, not me. What else you got? Not yet. Not yet. Um, do you know uh, if any of of your live shows were recorded by? Not by anything. Any the good. record label. Not or? by no. I told you the record label. Well, Boner Records wasn't that kind of label. They just put its stuff out. They just Boner Records was basically a guy who loved music, who started a label. You know, I think he made a living at it for a few years, but it was for the love of music more than anything. Actually, he started it to put out Fang to put out their record. Yeah, they weren't the kind of label that would do things other than put out the record, but they did a really good job at that, I thought. Well, I don't know, we sold 2,200 records or something. They did what they could with what they did. We were hard to sell. We were not a punk band, but we played punk shows because no one else would have us. We didn't really fit. You know, the word grunge didn't exist yet for a lot of what we were doing. And when that word came out, we were almost broken up and we didn't want to be something that other people were calling something. But Chris Novoselic says we're grunge. So I guess I'll, he would know better than anybody. So uh, I guess we were Yeah, grunge. that's true. I think he did say that in that interview with you. He wrote an article about Bomb for He used to do a uh, weekly article in the Seattle Weekly and he wrote you know he basically said bomb we're the greatest band you've never heard of and if they were from Seattle they'd be as big as Nirvana and I was like wow I got to talk to this guy he's cool 
So is anything recorded? I don't know. There's there's some videos on YouTube from one show that a guy I know named Michael Woody recorded with our permission at our last show or second to last show when we reunited. He recorded from the board and did videotape. And it's, you know, it's old analog videotape, but it looks pretty good for what it is. That's on YouTube, but that's the only thing I can think of that's live that's worth listening to or watching. It wasn't yeah. easy to record back then, you know. Now you, your phone can record okay if, if you set it so it's not distorted, you know. You can record live with a band. There's actually, I saw a recording of Fang playing in a backyard like two years ago that I think was done on a phone that looked and sounded great. I was like, wow, this looks better than a lot of rock videos from the 80s. And it was done on a oh, phone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Know, Occasionally, I, like if I go to a show and then I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll type, I'll type in the band and, and the place and the date into YouTube and try to find videos if anybody sometimes it'll be excellent quality and like, yeah. what were you using to record it and like, oh my iPhone yeah you know? but, and it turned yeah. out amazing though Bob um, was together from 86 to actually I think late 85 yeah because we formed right after I got there and I got there I was on the bus on Halloween so I got to San Francisco like November 1st and I met Jay within a month we played with Tony. We probably first played called Bomb in the garage before the end of 85, like d December 85. The show we played with Flipper was in 86. I think that was also July 4th. You know, I never finished the story about how I met Peggy and introduced her to Tad. True. Right. Not Tad. There's a guy named Tad who redid our album cover for this, who's great who does a lot of stuff for a lot of horror films for a living. He's just a really good graphic artist, and he really updated this album without ruining the artwork of Richard Kars, who was later shot and killed by the police, but that's a whole other story. He did all of our art, or most of our art. So Tad, from the band Tad, he's not, his name's actually Tom, but Thomas. But, um, oh, is it really? Yeah, it's Thomas Doyle, T-A-D. Tad's his initials. So Peggy and I were in a band in D.C., called The Day I Lost My Virginity. She later changed the name of the band to Michael. I don't know why. After we got a different drummer named Michael, she played bass and sang. I played guitar and sang. And it was Michael Salkine for the band No Trend. I don't know if you're them. They're a weird DC noise band that kind of got some college radio play. We got some college radio play too. I never finished that. I mean, we sent out, before we got signed, Boner sent records out to college radio and we sent out cassettes to college radio we got a little bit of play but nothing i would even call charting for college radio yeah our first gig was july 4th 1986 i met peggy july 4th 1984 and i had a, i made a t-shirt that said bass player needed and i just wrote it on my shirt and walked around with it and at some point there was this guy pointing at me and talking to peggy and I think he'd seen it and told her about it. And she's like, yeah, let's find him. And he went around and found me and pointed her out to me. And we played some gigs. We were on a compilation called Mutopia, M-U-T-O-P-I-A, which is kind of a cool, from the guys from uh, back then. Like, there weren't, we didn't have computers in Bomb. Actually, one of the first computers I saw was in Tom Flynn's house from Boner Records. But he was just using it for accounting. You couldn't really use them for graphics then. Mutopia has the band Michael in it, and it's by... It has Death Piggy, which was the band that Guar formed out of. DSI Records, Dark Self Image Records was the name of the record company. Yeah, so I knew Peggy. We'd stayed in touch. She got sober. I was sober. I was hanging out with her at her house in San Diego. I was dating a girl 
from Texas that came out to see me and we went down to Mexico. And on the way back, we stopped at Peggy's for the night in San Diego. And Peggy was like, man, you guys look like you're having so much fun. I can't meet a guy I like. Every guy I meet that's cool drinks and every guy I meet that's sober doesn't rock. And I was like, well, I got this friend that's sober named Tad and he really fucking rocks. She left the conversation, walked into her bedroom, came back with an album by the band Tad and said, this Tad? And I said, yeah. And she kind of dropped her jaw a little bit. And I pulled out my phone and I called him up. And I was like, hey, Tad. He's like, yeah, what's up, Michael? And I'm like, hey, there's this girl named Peggy. I've known her for a long time. She's really cool. I can vouch for her in every way. She's sober. She loves rock. She plays bass. And uh, I think you guys should talk. And he's like, sounds good to me. And I handed her the phone. And after a half hour, this is back when phone calls cost money. And I was like, uh, why don't you call her on your line now? And he, you know, they called on their land, <laughs> landlines. Landlines, that's a thing. And they've been married for like 15 years now. They're happily married. They play music together. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How cool. Yeah. So I have some good karma. If karma is a thing, I can go do something horrible now. Well, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Oh, the show, the one where I found the flyer and I sent it to you, where you guys played with the Gits. Yeah. Um, yeah, tell that story. Yeah, that wasn't that long, I think, before the singer in the Gits was murdered. That was, my daughter was at that show. My daughter later died of leukemia, but she was, she came down with her mother from Oregon and I wanted her to see me play. You know, she hadn't seen me play before and she, she saw me yeah. later up in Seattle play, but, um. And she was, she was a kid. She was like six and she was like asleep. I'm going to go to sleep, but I want you to wake me up and take me to the show. And she didn't even see the opening. I don't think she saw the gets. She might've seen, they played, I don't remember if they played before or after us. We were both kind of equal draws at that show. I think we actually flipped a coin. I don't remember. Or I think we were supposed to headline, but we played first so my daughter could see us. But she was asleep. We did sound check. And then she went and went to sleep at my house. And then her mother woke her up and brought her down. And she actually sang on stage with us on the end of Devil Is Us on the You Are My Sunshine part. She sang with us, which is really kind of heart-wrenching and sweet to me now to think about that. Yeah. But yeah, that was the only time I saw the Gits. It's the only time I met Mia. It's the only time I met the Gits. They were nice people. I liked them. Yeah, I saw a documentary on them, and then I think uh, one of the other band members described Mia as, um, I guess, socially awkward and uh, I know <laughs> and, and sh- shy prior. Or I know, like her family, I think was shocked first time that they saw her ever perform. Like, she I think a lot shy. of musicians are like that. I think music, is yeah, where, music is where shy nerds get to shine. You know. Yeah, I was never but, shy, though. I was, uh, I mean, you know, I met Jay walking up to Jay saying, I'm Michael Dean. I play bass and I sing. and I'm looking to start a band. Would you like to buy my album? And he <laughs> liked that I was doing that. He's like, that's the kind of guy I want in my band. Someone that's that pushy. Yeah, I couldn't pull that off, but... I'm not shy now, but I there are weeks and weeks where I see no one in person except my wife, and I'm fine with it. You know, I'm kind of become a recluse, but it, I'm not afraid of people. I could go out to a bar right now and be like, talk to a couple people and go, this is boring, I'm going home. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I play music by myself, my phone ringer is off. I have it set so my wife's the only person that can ring through. I think I actually have it on right now because I was talking to you earlier. So I'm going to turn it off. Well, I'll turn it off when we're done with this. I hope it doesn't ring. But what is the next question, sir? Nirvana, we're fans of Bomb. Why did it never happen? Why didn't you guys ever play any shows together? Or was it was it ever offered for you guys to open for them or anything no. like that? 
No. I don't know why. Because probably because they had like 50 other bands they loved that they were helping out. And probably because, I mean, they were at the point where they could choose whoever they wanted to open. Or I think sometimes they didn't even have an opening band, maybe. But I never saw Nirvana. Oh, and, really? Yeah. I really loved the... I'll admit something right now that I admitted to Jack and Dino the other day was I've never listened to Bleach all the way through until last week. Damn good album. I mean, I've heard it a million times here and there. My roommate used to wake me up with it, which is probably why I never listened to it. Really? You, know, you I've never been listened in, to the, all I've been, of it until... No, I've been in clubs where the DJ plays a couple songs from it. Although the, the Nevermind album, I... I wore out. I played it to death, which is not to say that production's better than Jack's. It's more like I think the band's playing was more, it's good, but it's rougher. And the songwriting is rougher on Bleach. It's, I'm a sucker for a song, man. I'll listen to country music if it's a good song, you know, old country. Yeah, old country. I've never. Uh, yeah, this new, this new shit to... is like fucking pop yeah. music with twangy guitars. And they don't Pretty like much. guns. And that's not country. Yeah. <laughs> Really, a lot of them were like, you know, after there was that shooting in Vegas, a bunch of country people came out and were like, I melted down my guns. I don't like guns. And I'm like, pussy. <laughs> I didn't hear about that reaction, but then I don't, I try to not watch that much on the news. It's, but... worth, not, it's worth not watching. Right now, there's 20,000 U.S. troops occupying Washington, D.C. because, you know, that's what democracy looks like now. <laughs> yeah, I have been keeping... All right, next question. Curious. Next question. Uh, Oh, we are speaking um, on Fiend Phone, which I co-invented, by the way, which is much better than Skype. It's a little harder to use. But, you know, the reason we use this, I hadn't used it in a long time, and it did take me some, some work to remember how to use the software I designed. I decided I didn't want to use Skype because Skype censors you. I don't know about with the talking, but if you say fuck now in a text in Skype, it cuts you off. I've heard that. Really? Yeah. Like, how square is that? Not only, yeah, I mean, that. like, free speech between two people is censored. That's crazy. Yeah, that really is. Well, that's really fucked. Yeah, so what's the next yeah. question? We got a lot more. Uh, got a lot to go a through. Lot more. I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. Did you guys play any venues? Um, we played a place called Trees. I think that's in Dallas, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Trees but we played still... to, like, nobody. We played to, like, ten people there. Uh, it's still alive and well. Uh, I, yeah, I saw Melvin's there not too long ago. Um, yeah. Yeah, oh, you know, a lot of times still... we played, you know, first of all, people hadn't heard of us. But second of all, like on, on subsequent tours, people had heard of us, but there would just be no promotion. I'd go walk around the block and there wouldn't even be flyers around the block. Like, that's not how you promote a show. Certainly how you grew up in Western New York. Yeah. Until what, it's, it's 16 Until or eight, so? Eight, well, I was born in Westfield, New York, and my parents had a store in Chautauqua, New York, and I lived a little while in Mayville, New York with my dad after my parents divorced, and I, I went to college in Jamestown, New York. Those are all within 15 miles of each other. Westfield, yeah, where, I was, where I was born, is it's an hour from Buffalo, and it's on Lake Erie, and it's like 10 minutes from Pennsylvania. If you want a picture where it is, it's a small town. It's like 3,000 people. Do you guys ever get the, a chance to play in Buffalo or Rochester or anywhere around there? We played in Buffalo once uh, at the Continental oh. at like 3 in the morning to a packed crowd. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people told me that was a really cool place. It, it shut down before I moved there. I moved there in 2007. We played with a band called The Femmes. I requested them, and they had a song... 
that I love. This is like before the internet. Tape traders gave me a tape of them and they had a song that the only lyrics to it, I thought it was really funny. It was like, go to a party, act like an asshole, go to a party, get real drunk. And it was like a singer and a guitar player and a drummer playing one drum, like a top floor tom. And they were great. I loved them. We had them on the bill. And then we played once opening for Matchbox 20. Yeah, okay. So we opened for Matchbox 20. Right when they were starting to get big, there were like 600 people. I remember my dad came up for that one. It was like an hour away. And he was really square. I mean, he was like, you know, he thought Dave Brubeck's jazz quartet was wild and crazy when we went to see them. And the first <laughs> show I ever saw was Elton John with my dad when I was 14 or maybe 12. I liked Elton John a lot because he writes good songs. And there were 78,000 people there. It was at Rich Stadium in Buffalo. And my dad was worried we were going to get arrested because people were smoking pot. <laughs> but later, later, we played in Fredonia, New York. And I met a woman there, Vicky, who became my girlfriend for like three years and moved out to San Francisco with me. We, had, we played a pack show at a little tiny club there. We played... I think that's it, man. And then the next time we came back to play that show, the guy who, who had booked the show found out that our roadie had slept with his girlfriend and canceled the show. And we had a guarantee, 200 bucks and a case of beer. This is something Tony was really good at, was Tony called up and made all kinds of threats. And we went down to the bar and there was 200 bucks and a case of beer waiting for us. The guy didn't go. He had his bar back, go down, open the bar and just wait there until we got the money and then leave. Like they didn't even open that night. Tony was good at that. Tony was another time. This is kind of this is kind of weird and funny, and then turns really dark. So there was this club called the Electric Banana in Pittsburgh. It was famous for not paying the bands and for pulling a gun on the bands when they went to get paid. And Holy we booked ourselves there because it was the only place to play there. And the guy didn't have a gun, but he didn't want to pay us. But Tony talked him into paying us. There were only like three people there for us because he didn't promote us. Tony had a really good take on that. He said, okay, well, I see that you've got Faith No More playing and I see you've got the Circle Jerks playing and blah, blah, blah. And I'm friends with somebody at every one of those four bands that you have headlining. And I'm going to call them and tell them you don't pay and they'll cancel. And the guy paid him. <laughs> and Tony was telling the truth. He knew those people and he would have called him and told him that. So he probably would have called him Collect and told him that. But that was that's the kind of asshole that's good to have in your band. But you really wish it was your manager instead of the guy you're writing songs with but that was he was really good at shit like that and another before that show tony said if that guy pulls a gun on me i'm gonna just say go ahead and shoot me and play his bluff now here's the really fucking dark part later our artist got shot by the police during a domestic quarrel when the neighbors heard yelling and called the cops and i wasn't there i'm not gonna say what happened Tony wasn't there, but Tony talked to the girlfriend of the guy that was shot, who used to be my girlfriend in Florida, right after yeah. this happened, which was also July 4th, some year later. Tony said that, that this guy was holding a knife. Police pointed a gun at Richard, said, drop the knife, and he took one step forward toward them and said, go ahead and shoot me. Like, he was quoting Tony in his head. Now, that's what Tony told me he heard from the girl. So that's like three layers of I don't even know if the girl was there. I think she was in a police car. So I don't know what happened. But that's what Tony told me was that Richard said, go ahead and shoot me. And the cops did. So, but, you know, I never put together in my head until recently that if that happened, Richard was like echoing Tony in his head, bragging about telling the club owner. I'm not saying it's Tony's fault at all. I'm just saying like, that's kind of fucking dark. If that's really was his last words, Richard's last yeah. words. Very dark. Oh, man. Yep. Um, and I'm not going to say anything about how Richard died or who was at fault or what. 
I mean, I always tend to not take the cop side in a citizen shooting, even if it turns out later it's different just because cops shoot people immorally and illegally so fucking often. But the last time I even opined an opinion on this, like the girl's family contacted me and was screaming at me. So I'm not, I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. there, I wasn't there. I heard it from a guy who heard it from a girl who heard it from the cops probably. Maybe. I don't know. I know he's dead though. I actually thought maybe he faked his death, but I had a friend who was staying in Jacksonville years later, go to the library and look it up on microfiche. Do you know what microfiche is? It's like, yeah, this is how they store I find them tricky. No, they're, yeah, they're not searchable, the really. It's basically old newspapers, printed newspapers, scanned onto microfilm on, on like a three by five card, and you have to go find yeah. the date and search through the whole paper. So, another question from Ted that did your art. Um, uh, okay. We did our art. It was done by Richard Kars. The credit that Jack wants for the mastering on this is forensically remastered, which is pretty accurate because of the amount of <laughs> saving a crappy tape that had been stored improperly for years, for decades required. But I would say that what Tad did with the cover art is a forensic remastering or remixing of Richard's art. Forensics in that forensic means using science to uncover evidence of a crime. That's the literal definition. And it's kind of funny, too, because another thing I forgot to mention is that the original master tape of Hits of Acid has DBX, noise reduction, printed to the tape. Oh, really? kind of like Dolby, but it's Dolby for studios. And it's something that would not be used anymore. And I would rather have a little tapist than use it. Yeah. I think it was a bad choice. I don't know whose choice I was. It wasn't mine. It was either the engineer's or the studio's choice. Yeah, that was a a bad idea. And that kind of was a crime. And Jack has a hardware unit to decode that, but it would be a lot better. What he's doing would be... I'm not making excuses. This is going to blow your socks off. But what he's doing would be even better if he didn't have to do that. There's a couple places where... The music kind of kind of wobbles a bit. It's really subtle, but it's uh, it's because of that DBX. And the DBX, I would say, was a crime. So he really did do forensic work because he's uncovering evidence of a crime and actually trying to hide the evidence of a crime so you don't hear it. And he did a really good job. So <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. So next question from Ted. Okay. This is this is from Ted. So. It comes across that your lyrics come from personal experience, given the kind of detail that it has. Was life really that fucked up? (laughs) Kind of. Shit. I'll talk about Tony first, what the little I know, and then I can talk more about me. So Tony, there's a lot of anti-Catholic imagery in our art, and Tony told me that that was because when he was a kid, like, I don't know, 10 or something, his dad told him, I wish I'd never had you. You ruined my life, but we couldn't have an abortion because your mother was Catholic. That couldn't have affected uh, (laughs) a person. Jesus. Yeah, and I don't know. um, I was molested when I was eight by a babysitter's brother. I, my parents were divorced when I was eight or nine, but who, who parents weren't divorced. Something really fucked up that happened to me was when I was 14, when I went away to boarding school. Which sounds really like, ooh, you went to boarding school. I went to a boarding school that was like cheaper than keeping me at home. It was really well endowed by people who used to go there. It's called the Church Farm School. And we went to church four times a week and worked on a farm. It was in Pennsylvania. It's still there. Now it's called the school at Church Farm because they've, you know, de-religioned it like everything now. But 
Yeah, that was my initiation at that school about a week after I got there was a bunch of kids spun me and this other kid. The only friend I had was this black kid named Carl. They called him Jimmy because he had an afro and he listened to rock and roll and none of the other black kids there listened to rock and roll. They all listened to like (laughs) Sugar Hell Gang. Like I heard rap before most white people heard rap because going to that school, you know, like, let's see, 64, 74. This is 1978. Yeah, it's the first time I heard rap. But a bunch of kids decided to initiate me and Jimmy. I was friends with him because I listened to Pink Floyd and I smoked pot. And back then, nobody in eighth grade, you know, in, in 78, kids didn't smoke pot. It wasn't a thing. So Jimmy and I, Carl and I bonded on that. And we kind of were like our only friends. He and I were our only friends at first in that school. Yeah. And these kids, 10 kids at the cottage, which is like the dorm, decided to initiate me. And keep in mind, there's an adult a dorm father in this building hearing all this going on and not stopping it. Now I would have sued them and owned the school. I mean, I can't believe that no one was sued over this, but they spun us around in a circle till we were ready to throw up. Jimmy threw up. Then they gave us wedgies and hung us on the wall by our underwear. They decided to put snow down the back of our pants. They couldn't get the window open. It was painted shut. So they couldn't get snow. So they said, use cold water. And we're like hanging on this hook the whole time. And they're like threatening to punch us if we jump down. So they said, use cold water. And the water wasn't very cold, but they said, use hot water. And the water was really fucking hot in that. And they used hot water and it gave me a second degree burn. And I was in a hospital for a week when I was 14. Two kids got kicked out of school for it. One of them got let back the next year, which is fucked up. I will name those kids. Their name were Patrick Donahue and Jim Skiles. Good Irish couple. But they let Patrick Donahue back the next year because he was a jock and they needed him for his for teams, you know, which is kind of fucked up. So like yeah, the kid that criminally assaulted me got to come back the next year and I had to see him every day. So they put me in a hospital for a week. Those two kids got kicked out. And it was the first time I took morphine. Like they put me on morphine in the hospital because I had burns and I was on my stomach for the first four days. I couldn't even roll over on my back because my skin was all burned off on, my, on one butt cheek. Yeah, and I gave me morphine, and I was like, I want to feel like this for the rest of my life. And so I'm not blaming my later addiction on that, but I realized that narcotics can make you go from feeling horrible to great really quick, really young. I don't know. What else happened? I was small. I was picked on. I'm 5'4 now, and I was when I was a senior, kids that were seniors who were like, you know, seniors are generally the size of men. I was like a boy. I was like the size of a seventh or eighth grader. I was tiny. So I got picked on a lot. I was weird. So I got picked on a lot. I didn't choose a normal path. So nothing was easy, but I would never say pity me for all that. I think it helped make me what I am. Yeah, it was, right. it was pretty fucked up. I mean, dealing with Tony was pretty fucked up too and not in a good way. The first show we played that there were a lot of people at who fucking loved us was a warehouse show. It was probably our second, our third or fourth show. And it was a warehouse at 101 South Van Ness, if someone wants to go on the bomb stumbling walking tour. I think it's a car dealership now, but it was upstairs, second floor of that. And we played to like, I don't know, 100 to 130 people probably who fucking loved us. And there was a lot of acid in the crowd that night. And I took some acid. I played really well. I was told I played really well, but I was having trouble tuning my bass because it was like, it felt like it was melting or like I knew it wasn't melting, but you know how acid makes things wiggle in your eye and in your ear and that would make it difficult. Yeah, like a lot, a strong hit of acid would make it hard to tune a bass. So I had to get Jay to tune my bass. And after sound check, I said to Tony, you know, like Tony's my big brother. I want to like get some comfort from him. And I said, Tony, I, I, I think I'm 
I think I could do this gig, but I'm having have trouble, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really high. I don't know what. Can you give me some advice? And he said, yeah, I think you should fucking not do acid in front of a gig and walked away. Ooh. Yeah. That wasn't what I needed, but somehow we, uh, it was kind of funny. We lived really near there. Uh, 1334 Jesse is really near there. It's a dead end street. I walked back there with my girlfriend at the time who was from Germany, spoke, spoke English okay, but mostly German. And we walked back. Somebody yelled something at us out of a pickup truck. She had been saying to me that she wanted to see Saturday night in America. And I ended up screaming, like not screaming at her, but like screaming at the sky. Like this is Saturday night in America. It's fucking beautiful, isn't it? And I meant sarcastically and we went back to the garage i was living in and she like laid me down and kind of petted me and calmed me and she said what do you wish my lover and i said i wish the world was just you and me and we were in the woods alone and she did the most beautiful thing man she went outside she picked some leaves off of a tree and came in and tore them up and sprinkled them on me and said this will be our forest and then she held me oh yeah that that actually is uh quite heartwarming yeah i'd i'd, uh, I'd melt if, if yeah uh, and, and if it gave me strength me. it gave me strength to battle my base monster and tony and play a great gig so it worked so what's the next question 